today is Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 1, which is on page 1035 of the Church Bibles. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Great, thank you, Becky. Thank you for reading that. Do keep that passage open. That would be really helpful to me uh, as we look at it together. Let me just get some furniture sorted here. Let's just pray, shall we? As we come to God's word, we need God's help to understand it, so let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you and praise you that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Thank you, Lord, that you reign the whole world Thank you that you are present throughout the whole world, Lord Jesus, and thank you that you promise to be with us now as we open the witness to your life and death and resurrection and reign. So, Lord, please, would you be our teacher? Please help us all in our sinfulness, in weakness. Help me in my weakness and sinfulness as I speak. Lord, please 
would you teach us by your Holy Spirit that we might trust you and live for you. Amen. Well, Christianity is for wimps, isn't it? For people who need a crutch, who can't cope with life. It's not really for tough men or feisty women, is it? That might be the way that our culture tends to think of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe we encounter that at school or university or in the workplace. I remember it being a very important question for me as a teenager growing up. Surely if I become a Christian, I'm just going to be put in that category of loser. In reality, Luke records, as we will see both today and next week, the reverse is true. And on today, Remembrance Sunday, it's worth us just calling to mind the examples of uh, tough men, particularly, we'll be thinking more about women uh, next week, tough men and women who serve in the armed forces who are Christians. I'm sure you've heard of Bear Grylls. Everybody know who I'm talking about, Bear Grylls? You know, a member of the SAS. Clear about his Christian faith as he's... Clear about it in, in programs like the Who Do You Think You Are programs on BBC or in his autobiography. He's unashamed about his Christian faith. If you're a member of the SAS, you are quite tough, aren't you? He says, Time and many adventures have taught me that to be completely and fully alive, I need. This life-giving presence that faith provides. And he's talking about Christian faith. I've had the privilege of coming across many Christians who serve in the army. Uh, Matt Cansdale, who used to be the leader of three battalion of two para, who has been decorated for his service in Afghanistan, who's now brigadier, was very, very clear about his Christian faith. Or William Wade. A number of us have heard William Wade speak, haven't we? the one-time army boxing champion. I presume you've got to be fairly tough to be that. Or Luke Denby-Hollis, who in previous church was one of those of 16th Air Assault who would go uh, behind enemy lines and have to survive on his own to guide the missiles. Army medics, I remember James Thompson, Uh, I actually taught him uh, as a 14-year-old, and then a number of years later, he came uh, to the church that uh, we were then a part of, and he'd become an army medic, one of those who sent in to pull out wounded people and dead bodies, clearly a vibrant Christian. No, the New Testament perspective, and we'll see in our passage... You need to be courageous to be a Christian. And therefore, there is no inconsistency between a tough, being a tough soldier or a feisty woman and a Christian. First thing we learn from our passage this morning is a good soldier trusts the authority of Jesus Christ. A good soldier trusts the authority or trusts in the authority of Jesus Christ. 
just for those of you who are joining us, we're working our way through Luke's gospel. We've seen how, at the beginning of his gospel, how it's, it's um, written so that we can, we can be certain of the truth of the Christian faith. He, he's done all the homework. He's a historian. He's investigated carefully. And he's writing an orderly account so that people can be certain of what they read is true. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, been looking at the Sermon on the Plain and, and Jesus' call to a deeper kind of loving community than you will find anywhere else in the world, a, a community in where enemies are loved. This is a spiritual kingdom. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, we read this. When Jesus had finished saying all this, that's the Sermon on the Plain to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, that's his hometown. There, a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was ill and about to die. Now, I'm sure you're all aware, a centurion is a Roman officer who commanded a hundred soldiers. You didn't become a centurion in the Roman army by being a shrinking violet. You had killed countless numbers of people. The Romans were not well known for mercy on the battlefield. They crucified those they captured. As we'll see, it was a centurion who was watching the death of Jesus because he was responsible for his crucifixion. He was the one who had to make sure that Jesus was dead. It was the centurion who put the spear into Jesus' heart to check that he was dead. This centurion was recognized as a deserving man, a, a good man. Verse 3, the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves you to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. This centurion was into church. Can you believe that? He, he was... Generous, presumably, with his time and, and money and influence to build the church of the day, to build the synagogue. He loved the Jewish people, God's people at that time. We come across another centurion in Acts, the centurion Cornelius, who was similar in his love for the people of God, his gifts to the poor. Here was a good soldier, a soldier that feared God, who was generous to God's people, who would be found with God's people on the Sabbath day. Does that fit with your image of a tough man? A courageous man? If we're here this morning wanting to be tough men, courageous men, noble men... Do you put church in that bracket? It surely challenges our culture's definition of masculinity. Yes, many in our culture will celebrate tough and courageous men, but they're more likely to be found not meeting in church in a pub, but just in the pub, wasted on a Friday night. That's surely what it means to be a tough man, getting paralytic or off your face, whatever the, 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 the terminology is now, and doing all kinds of things that then they're ashamed of the following day. 
you wouldn't put co a courageous masculinity and church side by side, would you? But the New Testament does. The Bible does. In fact, we, we know that many who brought Christianity to this country in Colchester were members of the Roman army. Maybe even those who'd been told by this centurion and then others and then others and, other, and eventually got here. That's how the Christian faith first came to these shores, was through the Roman army. See, this centurion is a, a good soldier in, in a much bigger definition of that word than often we might think. And because of his goodness, this is what we read in verse 6. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. This centurion, this Gentile, this good and godly man, God-fearer in many ways, part of the church of the day, feels his unworthiness. He is a humble man. He's like Peter. He doesn't feel worthy for Jesus to be anywhere near him. He's deeply aware of his sin and guilt, as Peter was. We see how this theme runs through Luke's gospel. It's not that he's a good man in the sense that he's done good things, which kind of predisposes Jesus to be interested in him. No, he's just put himself in the right place with God's people to learn humility. And it's that humility which surprises Jesus, which amazes Jesus, because here is a centurion, a hardened man who has seen countless people die, who has killed count, countless people, who probably suffered from PTSD, who was a bit messed up. I mean, you can't be a Roman centurion and not be slightly messed up. But despite that, he sees who Jesus is with the most clear faith that Jesus has yet come across. Jesus is amazed. Why? Well, the centurion says, say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus, uh, the centurion believes that Jesus can command sickness like he commands his soldiers. They just do it. He believes that Jesus has such power that Jesus just needs to say the word and his servant will be healed. And Jesus is amazed. Turning to the crowd following him, verse 9, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel even in the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that the, those who read their Bibles day in, day out, did not have the same kind of faith as this centurion who was a Gentile, who was outside the people of God. Verse 10, Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Can we see this man's stunning trust 
in the authority of Jesus Christ. He doesn't even question whether Jesus is able to do this. He recognizes his humility, his sinfulness. In, uh, I'm not worthy, Jesus, to have you to do anything. For, but, but if you say the word, this, this is what will happen. I, I trust you, Jesus. A good soldier trusts in the authority of Jesus Christ. The motto of Sandhurst, which is an army training college, we used to uh, lead a church very close to Sandhurst, so we had lots of people coming to uh, our church who were training army officers. The motto is serve to lead. Serve to lead. It's a very Christian motto. I remember talking to one of these officers who particularly enjoyed the explosive training, he would tell me how, you know, all the way through the week he'd been finding out new ways to blow things up. And he was paid for it. But as a Christian, he saw no contradiction between what he was doing. I know there's debates about just war and all that kind of thing. But good soldiers, according to Sandhurst, serve to lead. And we could put that motto over every man in the church. I'm thinking particularly of men, because we tend to get this wrong, guys. Serve to lead. If you want to be a tough guy, if you want to be a courageous guy, if you want to be a guy like the officers at Sandhurst, if you want to be like the rugby players in the All Blacks who are Christian or in the South African team... Take on board Jesus' way of leading. How does Jesus lead? He serves. This centurion trusted in the authority of Jesus Christ. It's what it means to be a Christian, isn't it, actually, to trust in the authority of Jesus Christ. But there's a particular shape for us men. We are to be committed to church as this centurion was. We are to be committed to serving, doing all the skivvy jobs, not thinking, you know, I'm the big I am. Everybody needs to serve me because I'm just so great. That's not what Jesus was like. He served to being prepared to have his hands nailed to a cross and nails go through his feet and a spear shoved in his side and to endure the judgment of God, to endure hell out of love for people. And that's how he calls us to love and serve. That's what he says. That's the, that's the pattern. That's the model. So if we're a man here this morning, is that our priority? If we want to lead, are we serving? If we want to be courageous men, are we serving? Are you committed to church as this centurion was, as Jesus commanded his followers to be? however strong or successful we may be or hope to be, are we ready to serve, to lead? Are we aware of our sinfulness in front of a holy God? I need to trust in Jesus for our forgiveness and for the model in our lives. And if we're married, wives, are we encouraging our husbands to be like this, to serve, to lead? If we want to be married, are we learning as single men to serve, to lead our families? 
This is a great need in our moment in cultural history, is it not? Because I don't know if you've come across something called toxic masculinity. It's a massive problem. Even within the church. See, today we remember the sacrifices of soldiers in war. And maybe some of us men need to remember that we're soldiers in a spiritual war whose victory is also won only by servant sacrifice. Not by just doing what we want, being who we feel we are, but laying down our lives for the church, for our bride, or future bride, like Jesus did. That's the pattern. A good soldier trusts in the authority of Jesus Christ. Secondly, trust in Jesus Christ to win a battle you cannot. I know that that has more application to the men amongst us here this morning, um, but it has application to the women as well. But this second one is universally applicable to us all. Trust in Jesus Christ to win a battle that you cannot there's a terrible body count in war, isn't there? We, we don't have to be convinced of this. Day in, day out, we hear of more being killed in Gaza, do we not? What was hundreds has become thousands, is starting to become the tens of thousands. The hostages are not being released. I'm not making a one-sided political point here. But it's likely that the hostage body count is increasing, is it not? We had hoped that trench warfare would have been a thing of the past, but the war of attrition in Ukraine is claiming the lives of tens of thousands of young people on both sides. And if you just consider the wars of the last century, whether it's the tens of millions of World War I or the over 100 million of World War II, the body count is horrific, is it not? And we, we can see the pictures on our TV screens, the bodies being laid out. And it's easy for us to feel that God does not care in response to war. And people harden their hearts, particularly those, in my experience, who have experienced war or all kinds of horrors in this life. Hearts are numbed by them. And people can choose to face death on their own without God, convinced that when we die, we rot, because that's what they've seen in reality. But this is to compound one tragedy with another, is it not? You see, as we come to this second part of our passage this morning, we need to be reminded maybe that Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, taking into himself a human nature forever. That is how committed God is to our human condition. God, in the person of his Son, becomes a human being forever, eternally, going forward. Of course God cares. I mean, would you become a bacterium because you care for bacteria? I doubt it. God has become human in the person of his son. And as we look at how Jesus reacts to tragic death, we see how he reveals God's heart, if you like. 
that God cannot suffer in his divine nature because God is immutable and eternal and unchanging and unendingly loving and, and blessed. God cannot change. But in the person of his son, we see how his unchanging eternal love responds to human tragedy. Look at it with me. It's wonderful. Verse 11, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. Interesting, dead person. That's an unusual way of putting it. It's not a corpse. A dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. Can we feel the tragedy? The whole town could. There's a large crowd with her. No husband. He died. And now no son. He died. And no other children. There's no NHS. There's no welfare state. This widow faces poverty, vulnerability, hunger, and probably an early death. Was she not going to be cared for by the community? I'm, I'm sure we know people how, who seem to have suffered an unfair amount of personal tragedy, do we not? How, how do we feel? I think of a friend who, I won't go into details, but horrific situation in marriage. And then her son died at the age of 11 from cancer. And poverty... <laughs> Some people just seem to have an unfair amount of tragedy. We need to feel this. I'm sure many of us are aware that it's the 400th anniversary of the publishing of Shakespeare's first folio. Don't worry if you're not aware. We've all heard of Shakespeare, though, I think. 36 plays published some 10 years after his death, and there's programmes all over the place, and many agree that there was never anyone quite like him able to express the tragedy of the human condition. Uh, forgive me, those of you who are English literature um, buffs, uh, that I may not get this perfectly right, but you'll get the drift. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. To die, to sleep no more, and be asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. Who doesn't sometimes just want to die? to escape this world and its tragedy. Obviously, Shakespeare says it a lot better. Or that's Hamlet, as I'm sure we all know. And then, and then Macbeth. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying 
nothing. We, we feel that is what this world is like. Do we, do we not? It's a perspective that is deeply biblical. Just read Ecclesiastes. If this world is all there is, that's our lot. And whilst there are a few better at expressing human tragedy, are any solutions presented in Shakespeare's plays? Oh, there's the glimpse here and there because of the, the Bible's influence on the culture of the day. I'm no Shakespearean scholar, as you know, but, but I don't think so. There's not much hope. But look at verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry? Why ever not? She's lost her husband and now her son. She has no hope in this world. This gives us a window into the heart of God, does it not? In the person of the Son of God, his heart goes out to her. And he says, don't cry. God is not distant from our tragedy. He's not detached and dispassionate. In our sense of injustice, we get a glimpse of the righteous fury of God at injustice. In our compassion for those who suffer tragedy, we get a dim glimpse of the deep compassion of God for those who suffer. We are made in his image. Is our compassion greater than that of God's? Is our sense of injustice greater than the sense that God has? Of course not. Verse 14, then he went up and touched the bier. They were carrying him on. And the, the bearers stood still. You've got to be pretty confident to do that, don't you? Next time there's a funeral procession, see how much courage you think it would take for you to go up, stop the coffin, open the coffin and say, I'm going to do something about this. Jesus stopped the funeral procession and he says, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. And of course, the news spreads far and wide. As the children sing, only God can do that. Only Jesus Christ is God incarnate. No other religion claims this. Oh, God coming into a human being for a little while, but not God becoming a human being forever, because he loves us so much, and he cares so much for our tragedy and our human condition. He's come to do something about it. He's come to help us. We might say, well, yeah, but why did he just do that? Why didn't he raise everybody? I mean, that son died again. That mother died again. Does God not care? Well, the Bible is clear that this is showing us what the kingdom will be like. Jesus on earth shows us what the kingdom will be like. Death will be ended because sin will be dealt with. The devil will be thrown out. And forever and ever and ever we will be in a place, if we trust in what Jesus has done, 
without tears. He will wipe every tear from our eyes if we trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done. See, this was a temporary solution, this raising of this young man from death. And for Jesus, this was a sign that pointed to his greater work, his greater power, his greater care and compassion for people when he went to the cross and battled with death itself, dying in our place, your place and my place if we trust in him. He's like we were thinking about, he, he's done the great swap if we've trusted in him. His righteousness, his almighty life, for our sin and death, if we have trusted, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Or are you still trying to, to fight this battle with death on your own? C can I just suggest, I don't think you're going to win. One out of people, one out of one people die. D don't just look at all the bodies lined up in war. Your body will be dead one day. Who are you trusting to bring it back to life? Yourself? Who is the only human being in history who has died, really properly died? Centurion put a spear through his heart. His body was cold and dead three days and then came back to life and rose to eternal glory. Why wouldn't you trust in him? To, to, to win a battle that you cannot win yourself. I mean, then centurion. We'll, we'll finish with the centurion in all the Gospels. He, he was there. He, he was watching Jesus die. What was his conclusion? Hardened, tough man. Surely this man was the son of God. And so Jesus comes to us this morning, knocking on the door of our lives, dead lives without him. It's just a matter of time before we are carried out as a dead person. And it's our funeral. He comes knocking to the door of our lives. And whatever tragedy we have or will experience, he says, don't cry. Don't cry, trust in me, and you will be raised into a new world where there is no more death or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Have you accepted his offer of help? Will you let Jesus come and help you? Will you gladly say, I'm, I, I'm happy to be on the receiving end of the compassion and power of Almighty God, yeah, I'd like some of that. Or you just think, ah, church, ah, it's for wimps. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you know what each and every one of us faces. You know that because of our sinfulness, because of rejection and rebellion against you, almighty God, that we face death and hell. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into this world to die our death, to endure our hell, so that we might know your life 
and your paradise, your heavenly glory forever and ever. And thank you that having trusted in you, we can live lives that are like yours. As women and men, but particularly men who serve to lead.